You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So Stonegate, for the last 20 centuries, the church has gathered on Easter Sunday to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The tomb is empty. That the power of God has defeated Satan, sin, and death to celebrate those realities. And, and those realities are not nuanced theological points. They're not agree to disagree sort of points. They are the central tenets that make Christianity Christianity. Um, I love how John Stott says it. He says, Christianity at its essence is a resurrection religion. This is what it is deep down at the core. It's a resurrection religion. And if you remove the resurrection, Christianity is destroyed. That's how important the resurrection is. And this is one of Paul's point, points in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if the resurrection didn't happen, this should be all of our strategy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Like you should just try to eke out as much joy in the here and now as you can possibly you know, get. But, but if the resurrection did happen, everything's changed. Everything is now different. I love how one pastor put it. He said, if the resurrection didn't happen, nothing really matters. But if the resurrection did happen, nothing else really matters. You know, one of the things I appreciate so much about the resurrection is that it forces the big questions of life upon us. I mean, just think about your last week. And think about the questions that you have been asking over the last week. On Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, Thursday, just think about the questions that, that sort of filled your day. Most of the questions that we deal with are what you might call small questions. Even if you're, even if you're wrong, not a whole lot is lost. But there are 0.1% of questions that might be considered the big questions, those massively important questions. And those big questions, they determine not only the direction of your life now, but the destination of your life forever. There's those sort of big, huge, massively important questions. And the resurrection has a way of, of platforming and put us, putting before us those big questions like, who is Jesus? What is going to happen after we die? Are we right with God? The resurrection forces those sort of questions upon us, that, that 0.1% of questions. And Donald Whitney reminds us that if a person is wrong about being right with God, if we're wrong about that, if we're wrong about being right with God, then ultimately it really doesn't matter what else he or she is right about. That's how important those big questions are. If you get those wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right. And this is the danger and maybe a warning for all of us. If we aren't careful, we'll walk through life majoring on the minor questions, being right about a million questions that in the end just don't really matter and missing all along those big questions that determine everything. So today, I just want to allow, really, the resurrection of Jesus to force upon us that big question. Are you right with God? Just think about that question for a moment. One day, you're going to stand before Jesus, and there's going to be no question as significant, as important, as big as this one. Are you right with God? Just imagine a group of people, um, 100 people in a room. Just imagine that. And they're asked that question, are you right with God? Uh, the people in that room, those 100 people, would generally fall into one of four categories in regards to that question. Some would be secure, but not sure. 
Secure but not sure. So in other words, um, they're secure. When we say that word secure, we mean that they're right with God, um, that they've been rescued by God, forgiven by God. The Bible sometimes uses the word saved to describe what it means to be secure in Jesus. So they're secure, but they're just not sure. They're besieged with doubt. They're, they're right with God, but they just they, they really struggle with assurance. Others in that room, when you ask that question, are you right with God, um, they would be in the category of secure and sure. Uh, these people are secure. They're right with God. They've been rescued by Jesus. And at the same time, they feel, they feel great assurance. Uh, they, are, they are correctly confident in their security. But, but others in that room, when they're asked that question, are you right with God, they would feel secure but all the while, they would feel sure, but they're not secure. And this is the most dangerous category. This is the one that keeps me up at night. Um, they're incorrectly confident. They feel sure when they shouldn't. That They think, but they think wrongly that they're right with God. This is who Jesus addresses in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 22 and 23, when he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? But Jesus looks back at them in verse 23 of Matthew 7 and says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now notice in that passage, Jesus doesn't say some will be in this category. He doesn't say just a few will be in this category. He says there will be many who are incorrectly confident. Uh, J.C. Ryle, the old Anglican bishop, he says it this way, just reminding us of this. He says, the day of judgment will reveal many strange things. That, that moment when we stand before God will reveal many strange things. The hopes of many who were thought great Christians while they lived will be utterly confounded. M many. Not some, not, not a few, but many were incorrectly or will be incorrectly confident. So we need to personally receive that warning from Jesus. We should all ask the question, could I be a part of the many who are incorrectly confident? Do I feel secure when I shouldn't? Then there's a fourth category. If you just picture that room of a couple hundred people, they're asked the question, are you right with God? Uh, there's that fourth category of, of people who are not sure. They, they don't know if they're right with God. And the truth is they're not secure. They're really not right with God. And if that's you today, if, if you're doubting that and you have a good inclination that you're not, you're, you've not been rescued, you've not been redeemed by Jesus, I just want you to know we fight so hard around here to create a culture where anyone can ask honest questions about God and about their life, where they can think their life through. We work so hard to create a culture where that's possible, and we just want to invite you to do that this morning. Before Jesus, to ask those sort of big questions about your life. And to help us all do that, we're going to go to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And this passage helps us answer the question, what does it require to be right with Jesus? What does it require to be right with God? So here's the context of Luke 23. In Luke 19, Jesus rolls into Jerusalem. He sell, um, you know, when he rolls in on a Sunday, uh, the crowds are cheering his name. Uh, but if you know the story, those cheers soon changed. On Thursday, four days later in Luke 22, Jesus takes his disciples to an upper room and celebrates the Passover. He washes their feet, and then he takes them on that Thursday night to a garden to pray. And Jesus knows how painful the road ahead is. And this is why he prays to his father, not my will but yours be done. 
And his prayers are so intense and his stress is so great that the skin, the capillaries and the the surface of his skin began to burst and he literally began to sweat drops of blood. And then in the early hours of Friday morning, he was betrayed and arrested. He endured six makeshift trials, a hellish beating, and was eventually on Friday morning condemned to crucifixion. And that's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 23, verse 32. The scriptures say two others who were criminals. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us something about these criminals. They were thieves. So these two others, they were, they were criminals. They were thieves. They were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, this is an interesting text because in... in some sense, these two criminals, these two thieves, each crucified on, on the sides of Jesus, they are representative. In a, in a, in a way, they represent the, the whole lot of humanity. Every human being can identify with one of these two thieves. And that big question, are you right with God? Like, how is that moment one day when you stand before God going to go, are you right with God, hangs in the balance on which one of these two thieves represents you? Which of these thieves represents you? And there's three questions that will help us kind of identify that and to work that out in this passage. Three questions. Here's the first question. Which thief represents you? Question number one, do you see your need? Do you see your need? Look at Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? If you are, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This passage is so ironic. Both of these men were criminals. And even more, both were justly condemned criminals. But only one could see it. Only one could receive the fact that he was a criminal, a criminal and he was receiving the due rewards of his deeds. One could own his crimes, one couldn't. One not only owned his crimes, but also his just condemnation. One of them knew that this sentence of crucifixion actually fit the sin. One knew that and one didn't. And so that leads us back to the question, which thief represents you? Can you say along with this thief, I am a criminal in God's court? Can you say that? That I'm a criminal in God's court? Can you you own that before God? And this is the sobering verdict that the Bible pronounces over every human life, that that we are criminals in God's courts. This is Paul in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, none is righteous. No, not one. He goes on in in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, to say, for all, from the best of us to the worst of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the pronouncement over every one of our lives, uh, that we are criminals in God's court. But it's been my experience that it's hard for people to see that, especially nice people, right? It just, it's so hard for us to see that. And one of the reasons is comparison. We have become professionals at comparing ourselves with other people. And if you want the the classic kind of illustration of this, just ask any room full of people, who in here is an above average driver? What happens in the room? 
Everybody raises their hand, right? Everybody does, right? We, we have this innate tendency to think better of ourselves than we actually are. And then we have this tendency to think that God grades on a bell curve, you know? We think this is how God, God grades. It's on this, this bell curve. So if you just imagine you're standing before God and just imagine that Hitler's there with you. This, this is how we see that moment. We, we look up at God and we're like, okay, it's, it's me and it's Hitler. Who's going to win that moment? We, we just had this innate way of thinking, I'm going to win. Hitler's going to lose and I'm going to win. I may not be Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler either. I'm good in this moment. This, this is how we think. I, I've paid my taxes, at least most of them. I've never owned a cat. I, I've got to be good. God's got to be pleased with me, right? This is how we think. God grades on this bell curve. There's no way. I may not get an A, but there's no way God's given me worse than a B. This, this is how we innately think. Uh, the only problem with that is the Bible. That's the problem with that. The scriptures make no room for a bell curve. God doesn't grade on a bell curve. God grades with a straight line. And in the end, there are only two grades. It is either faultless or fail. It's either perfection or you don't pass. Those are the only two options in God's court. The only two options. And when we stop comparing ourselves to the worst of us, and, and instead we start comparing ourselves to God's perfect law, th then we start to see that both the best of us and the worst of us are still criminals in God's court. I, th think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. Part of the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to help us see we're all criminals. That's part of the purpose of the Ten Commandments. So just think about the Ten Commandments uh, briefly. Think about commandment number six. Do not murder. When Jesus is explaining the sixth commandment in Matthew chapter 5, he shows us that it's possible to murder with your hands and your heart. He says, if, you have, if you've been angry, unrighteously angry at your brother or your sister, you are equally liable to judgment. You have murdered in your heart. Has anybody in here never been un, you know, unrighteously angry? No, Jesus' point in Matthew 5 is to say, you've all broken the sixth commandment. You've all murdered, whether it be in your hands or your heart. Think about the Eighth Commandment. Do not steal. Have you ever stolen anything in your life, big or small? I mean, the Bible's kind of point is, yeah, you have. We all have. That's sort of the Bible's point. And if somebody stole from you, what would you call that person who's stolen from you? A thief, right? This is the Bible's verdict over our lives. Think about the Ninth Commandment. Do not lie. Have you ever told a lie, big or small? Just, you know, just sort of stretching the truth to make your point. I mean, have you ever lied? The, the Bible's point is, yeah, you all have. And what do you call a person who's lied to you? A, a liar, right? So, so we've looked at three of the Ten Commandments, and we found that every one of us in the room are lying, thieving murders. Welcome to Stonegate. I hope you have a great Easter, right? <laughs> but, but this is the Bible's point that we're all convicted criminals in the court of God. See, the question in the Bible is not, are you a condemned criminal in God's court? The question is, what kind of a criminal are you? Are you the sort of criminal who sees it and owns it and then pleads for it and receives the grace of God? Or are you the criminal that stands back, folds his arms, shakes his head, and denies it? One thief owned it, one thief didn't. One thief saw his need, the other thief didn't. So now we're back to our question, which thief are you? Do you see your need? Do you see your need this morning?
Question number two, do you see the person of Jesus? Do you see the person of Jesus? This is really an amazing story. Here are two criminals. Matthew and Mark tell us that they are both hurling insults at Jesus. But then suddenly something happens. One thief, he actually begins to see. Look at this in verse 40. It says, but the other, that the seeing criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But, but, he's starting to see Jesus here, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. This thief not only sees his sin, he sees more than his sin. He's finally seeing the person of Jesus. He sees Jesus as sinless. Now, notice here, he doesn't say, um, hey, th this man, Jesus, he was just wrongly accused. You need to get a DNA sample and this will all get kind of cleared up. No, he doesn't say he was wrongly accused. He says, he has done nothing wrong. In other words, he's, he's faultless. He's lived perfectly. Everywhere that we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Everywhere we've broken the commandments of God, Jesus has perfectly kept them. He's seeing that this is the sinless son of God. He, he's sinless. But he also sees that Jesus is a savior, his savior, the, the savior. Now, think about this story. Both of these thieves have a front row seat to salvation. But both of them do. They are literally feet away from the sinless son of God substituting himself. They are literally feet away hanging on a cross next to the Son of God hanging on the cross in our place. That they are witnessing, they are watching our sin come crushing down on and condemning Jesus. They are watching and witnessing God the Father turn his face away from God the Son so that we could be rescued and saved. They're seeing that. They're witnessing that. And one thief recognized it. In verse 42, I love these words in verse 42. And he said, the seeing thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Jesus, Savior, remember me. This man had spent his days running from God. All of his days he had been rejecting God. This man is a varsity sinner. Right, but, but there came this moment in his life where he begins to see his eyes open up both to his sin and his need for a savior. And then his eyes open up to the savior, Jesus right there, hanging on a cross, paying for his sin. There's this moment of clarity where the fog vanishes and he realizes this great irony that this man's punishment, Jesus's punishment is the pathway to paradise. This man sees it. He, he recognizes that, that this man dying beside him on the cross is his only hope. That this thief is finally seeing Jesus. One thief saw him, one thief didn't. So, so that begs the question, what, how, how about you? Are you seeing the person and the work of Jesus? Are you seeing the person and the work of Jesus? You know, all credible historians agree that Jesus existed. There was a real man named Jesus who lived in the first century. So the question is not on the existence of Jesus, but the identity of Jesus. Who was he? That, that's the question. And that's a question that every human being has to answer. We're all going to stand before that Jesus someday. We all have to give an answer to who is this Jesus. And I just want to invite you to be a thinker this morning. 
to be a thinker. No human being has the luxury of, of saying, Jesus was just a good man. Nobody can say he was just a good man. Because Jesus taught things that demand action. He taught that he was the son of God, that he was God in the flesh, that he is the only way to be made right with God. Jesus taught these things. So so calling him a good man demands the next step of also calling him a great savior. No human being has the luxury of just calling Jesus a good prophet. We don't have the luxury of doing that. Uh, To be a good prophet, you have to say true things. And calling him a good prophet also demands calling him a great savior. So, so no one has the luxury of just saying Jesus is a good man or a good prophet. I love how Tim Keller says it. He says, you can crown Jesus or you can kill Jesus, but the one thing you can't do is say, well, what an interesting guy. That's the one thing you can't do. Or as C.S. Lewis famously said, Jesus is either a liar who has fooled us all or he's a lunatic claiming to be God. Right? He's either a liar or a lunatic, or you believe what he said, you take him at his word, and you call him Lord. Those are the only, those are the only three options. Who do you say that Jesus is? Are you, are you seeing Jesus? These two criminals both hanging beside Jesus. One saw him, one didn't. Which thief are you? Are you seeing Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? And here's the third question. Have you experienced salvation? Have you experienced salvation? This is my favorite part of the text, verses 42 and 43. And he, the seeing thief, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In verse 43, and Jesus said to him, this thief, this criminal, truly I say to you, to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's amazing. This criminal not only recognized Jesus, he received Jesus. He he was rescued from his sin. He was rescued from the wrath of God. He was made right with God in this moment. Now, Now, this text teaches us a few things about salvation, a few things about what it means to be rescued by Jesus. This text teaches us that it's a gracious salvation. It's a gracious salvation. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. It's the one-way love of God. And this thief, like us, deserved to be punished. If we're talking what's fair in this moment, what he deserved, punishment, wrath, is what he deserved. He's a convicted criminal for crying out loud, right? This is who he is. This is what he's done. But instead of punishment, this thief got paradise. This is the, the grace of God. This thief did nothing to deserve forgiveness, He did nothing to deserve the rescue of God. This thief had hours left to live. It's not like he could undo himself to the cross, go do a bunch of good deeds real quick to to counterbalance and outweigh the bad deeds that he had done. He didn't have time to do any of that. This thief did the only thing he could do. He gave up on himself and he banked on the perfect life of Jesus. It's a gracious salvation. It's a personal salvation. I love the the last couple of chapters of the Bible in Revelation. It it paints this beautiful picture of a recreated earth, what what heaven will one day be. And and in that recreated earth, there's going to be no death, no sorrow, no suffering, no sickness. It's going to be a great place. But those things are not what make paradise, paradise. These things are not what make heaven, heaven. If you look in verse 43, the five words before that word paradise, 
It's those five words that make paradise, paradise. This is how personal salvation is. Jesus looks at this thief and says, you. See how personal that is? See how particular that is? You. You will be with me. That's how personal salvation is. It's, it's, here's paradise. Here's heaven. Paradise in the Bible is you with Jesus in a place where you will flourish forever. That's the incredibly bright future that Jesus offers. But it's personal. It's not, it's not what do your parents think about this. It's not what do your friends think. It's personal. It's you will be with me. And this text also shows us that it's a time-sensitive salvation. A time-sensitive salvation. One day it will be too late. One day the mercy of God will run out. And for all those who refuse the mercy of God now, on that day when the mercy of God runs out, there will only be wrath remaining. It's a time-sensitive salvation. These thieves, like us, have a limited time. It's, it's now or never. It's receive the mercy of God now for them, or it is wrath forever. It's a time-sensitive salvation. So how do we make sure we're in on this incredibly bright future that Jesus offers? How do we make sure we're in on this rescue, this, this salvation? How do we do that? The Bible has a simple word to describe it. It's called faith. And oftentimes we just use this illustration to describe it. It's God coming to us and making a deal with us. This is the good news of Jesus. God comes to us and he says, will you put out your hands for me? And Jesus looks at us with, with our hands out and says, would you be so humble as to give me your sin? You know the sin that you know disqualifies you? Would you be, would you be so humble as to give me that sin? But not only your sin, would you also be humble enough to give me the good things in your life that, that you think somehow qualify you before me? But would you be so humble to, to both give me the sin that you know disqualifies you and to give me the good things that you think qualify you? And for all those humble enough to give Jesus those things, Jesus says, will you please keep your hands open? And would you be so humble as to allow me to put my perfect record of righteousness in your hands? My, my faultless life in your hands. My, my perfect life. Would you be so humble as to receive that? Would you stop banking on you, your works, your good deeds? Would you stop doing all of that? And would you give up on you? And would you, would you open up your hands and receive me? Would, would you do that? And this is the amazing picture in this passage. One thief did it. Well, one thief didn't, but one thief did. Well, one thief did the only thing he could do. He, he gave up on himself and he threw his life upon the grace of God, upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and this text is asking you now this question. Which thief are you? Which thief are you? Will you bow there where you are? And I just want to have a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning.
Are you right with God? There's going to be a day coming sooner than many of us imagine when we are standing before God. And the question, the question in that moment is, are you right with God? You're you're forever hangs in the balance of that question. Are you right with God? And I'm not asking, do you believe some facts about God? Have you raised a hand or repeated a prayer or signed a card? I'm asking, have you given up on yourself and thrown your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? One day when you stand before God, there's really only two options. There's there's only two options. In that moment, either you will pay for your sin or you will trust Jesus to pay for your sin. And that decision has to be made before that moment. In that moment, the mercy of God's already run out. It's now or never. Either you will pay for your sin or you'll trust Jesus to pay for your sin. And today, if you want the rescue of Jesus, if you want to meet Jesus, if you want... If you want this salvation that Jesus offers, if you want to be right with God, I just, I just want to encourage you today to give up on you and to look to Jesus, to trust Jesus, to throw your life upon the risen Jesus. That's the only way. It's the only way we'll ever be made right with God, to receive from Jesus his faultless life, his perfect life. Have you made that decisive decision Have you pushed your life across that line of faith? Has there been that moment in your life where you've given up on you and you've trusted and banked on the perfect life of Jesus? If not, this is your moment. This is your moment. Resurrection Sunday. It's it's your moment for that to happen. So there where you are, you you can communicate that to God from your heart to his heart. God, I'm giving up on me. I'm banking on the work of Jesus. My sinless substitute who was risen from the dead on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death. I'm banking on that Jesus to make me right with you. And if that's you this morning, if this is your morning, you're pushing your life across that line, making that big, decisive decision. Can you just look up at me where you are if that's you? If for the first time you're making that decision, just make eye contact with me. Yeah, I see you. Yeah. Just make eye contact with me there where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Just make eye contact with me. Yeah, I see you. So I want to take a moment to pray for you. Father, what mercy we find in Jesus. What grace we find in Jesus. All of us criminals condemned in your court. But here comes grace. Rather than punishment, because of Jesus, we get paradise. Gosh, what grace. And Father, I I pray for those who today are making that decisive decision. Father, would you encourage them? God, would you help them? God, would you meet them 
right where they are this morning and empower the new life that you've implanted within them. God, we pray that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.